Let me ask you guys a question. Have any of you ever felt like you've been divided from another human being by some sort of inward or outward defilement? Let me give you an example. I love to wake up in the morning and roll over and give my wife a good morning kiss, but she always instead turns her head away and buries her face in the pillow and says, get away from me. Why? Morning breath, man, like defiled, melt steel dragon breath. <laughs> and so she won't let me kiss her. I love to come in and I love to give my kids a hug when I see them. And sometimes I'll go, we have a little CrossFit gym in our garage and I'll go out and get a workout in and then I'll come in and they'll, they'll just be getting up. Come here, girls, give me a hug. And they literally scream in disgust and flee from me because of the sweatiness and the sogginess and the grossness. My, my defilement divides me from them. One more. Have you guys ever had that, that wake up in the morning moment and you see that, that huge zit on your forehead? It like starts at the back of your head and like comes out here. And you just know that you're not gonna be able to communicate with anybody all day because you're gonna run into them. They're like, they won't look you in the eye. They're, you're like trying to talk to them. They're like looking up at the sky. It's like that little bit of defilement keeps you, keeps you from connecting with each other. You know, the... The reality is there's a, there's a much more serious and tragic side to, to, to dirtiness, to defilement. And the Bible, the Bible gives us a very troubling perspective on the human condition and our human experience. What the Bible says is that defilement is essentially sin. And sin has separated us from our creator, from our God. And so too sin has separated us from each other. And because of sin, we now create these false standards of what we consider clean and what we consider unclean, what we consider defiled and what we consider undefiled. And it causes us to divide from one another and separate from each other. And now as humans, we tend to treat each other along these social codes in accord with these social codes that are literally just filthy with injustice, judgmentalism, oppression, and inequality. And so in our world now, some who are rich view the poor as dirty. Some who are poor view the rich as defiled with insatiable greed. Some men in our world view women as less than. Some women in our world now view men as inherently dirty. And so we divide across political groups, social classes, physical appearance, degrees of power, and all of these false standards of clean and unclean, they keep some in and they keep others out. And it's these false standards of clean and unclean that have led to some of the most horrific things in the history of human experience. Just think with me of the gas chambers and the ovens of the Nazi Reich, the killing fields of Cambodia, the Sudanese civil wars, Syrian dictators dropping chemical weapons on innocent children. All these things are done in the name of ethnic cleansing. And that, Christians, is why Jesus is so important to us. And that is why Jesus is so important to this world. Jesus is God's answer to the inward defilement that divides us. And he is the answer to the horrific divisions within us. 
Jesus is God literally saying to us, I don't want to be separated from you. I love you. And Jesus is God entering into our uncleanness, and he is touching all of the untouchables. Jesus is God coming to heal the wounds of this war-torn world, and Jesus is come to wash us all, all humans, in this infinite, unifying love of our Creator. So we're going to get into our story now, starting with the rescuing of religious people. The rescuing of religious people from their defilement. Read with me verses 1 and 2 of Matthew chapter 15. It'll be on the screens for you as well. Then some Pharisees and teachers of the law came to Jesus from Jerusalem, and they asked him, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? They don't wash their hands before they eat. Okay, let's just stop there, and let's get some context. The Pharisees, we see them over and over and over throughout all the Gospels. And the Pharisees were a particular group of Jews, of followers of Yahweh, and they really were intense. They really wanted to be close to God. They really wanted to be right with God and clean with God. In fact, this group of religious zealots, they came about because they recognized that Israel, God's people, had actually been cast into exile and they'd been separated from their homeland. The Jews had been separated from their place of intimacy with God, their place of worship, because of defilement. And their defilement had come through disobedience to Torah, the laws of Moses, the first five books of our Old Testament. And so the Pharisees, they were a group who said, we are not going to let that happen again. We're going to be squeaky clean in our commitment and obedience to Moses, to Torah. And so this little hand-washing thing that we're reading about right here, it was just one, just one of many, many religious rules that the Pharisees, they developed these traditions to keep themselves clean before God and, and to ensure that others were kept clean before God. And so this little section here, what they had done is they had taken this obscure command in the book of Leviticus that was actually, it was actually intended for Levitical priests in the temple they had taken that and they had overinterpreted it and they had overapplied it. And now they said everybody has to wash their hands in the same standards in the same way that these Levitical priests do before they go in to take sacrifices in the temple. The problem was in their attempt to keep themselves and to keep everyone else clean and undefiled before God, their souls, like their inner being, was actually dirtied with, with pride and self-dependence. And through their traditions, they actually lost God. And so their misinterpretation and their misapplication of Torah, it caused them to, to add their words onto God's words, and it resulted in them actually losing God's heart. But Jesus absolutely was head over heels in love with them. <laughs> he loved them. And so over and over and over, Jesus would come to them and he would say to them, your religious rules, all your behavior modification, all your traditions that you add on top of Torah, on top of God's word, basically you think that that's keeping you clean, but you're absolutely filthy. Jesus in love would come to them and say, you think that you're close to God because of what you're doing outwardly, but inwardly you are far, far away. Can you guys get the feel now of why Jesus was so terribly offensive to this community of followers of Yahweh? 
He was literally saying that their entire life of focus and effort, driven by a desire to be right with God, Jesus comes along and he actually tells them it's a complete failure and what you're doing is actually keeping you and others far from God. And so Jesus, he just doesn't pull any punches. He turns the table on them here in verses three through six. Read with me. Jesus replies to their question. And why do you break the command of God for the sake of your tradition? Jesus, like the spiritual ninja. They come in to attack him. He's like, nope, whoop, jumps out of the way and slices and dices them with his own interpretation here. Brilliant. For God said, honor your father and mother, and anyone who curses their father or mother is to be put to death. But you say that if anyone declares what might have been used to help their father or mother is devoted to God, Mark tells us it was an ancient Hebrew tradition called korban, They are not to honor their father and mother with it. Thus, you nullify the word of God for the sake of your tradition. So on top of their hand-washing traditions and many, many other traditions, the Pharisees had developed this particular tradition that if one committed money to the temple, if they vowed money to the temple, that money could not be transferred to anything else, no matter what, even ailing parents. And so their religious rule, it denied the very heart of God as prescribed in the Ten Commandments to honor your father and your mother. Can you guys imagine this? Let's say your mom, she gets hospitalized and she doesn't have any money because she's been out of work and she needs some help with groceries. And you're like, sorry, mom, I've already committed all my money and my tithes to Park Hill. I can't help you out at all. Can you... It's just ludicrous in our minds, but that's what was happening here. And so their rules, their traditions were actually without God's heart. And their religion was wrecking the relationships that God was actually after building. And their self-made standards were actually defiling them. And so Jesus, man, Jesus, as always, he just calls it as it is. A spade is a spade. Verse 7, you hypocrites. Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. Jesus called the crowd to him and said, listen and understand. What goes into someone's mouth doesn't defile them, but what comes out of their mouth, that is what defiles them. Then the disciples came to him and asked, hey, Jesus, did you know that like, you, were, you were super offending the Pharisees, when they heard you saying this. And he replied, every plant that my heavenly father has not planted, it's going to be pulled up by the roots. Just leave them. They're blind guides. If the blind lead the blind, both of them are going to fall into a pit. Religious defilement, it's hard to spot in others. And it's really hard to discern in ourselves because It's behavior and language that has the appearance of following God and obeying God, but the heart is far from him. At the root of religious defilement is a prideful trust in our own standards of right and wrong to the detriment of our relationship with God and others. And Jesus, he knows this and he knows us. He knows all humans intimately and deeply. And so what he does instead is he says, all right, all right, let's get down into the heart of the issues here. Let's, let's get past our outward behaviors. Let's get past our traditions. Let get, let's get past our interpretations. Let's get down into the guts of defilement, where it comes from, and let's deal with it. Verses 15 to 20. 
Peter said, explain the parable to us. And Jesus responded, are you still so dull? <laughs> and Jesus asked them, don't you see that, or Jesus asked them, don't you see that whatever enters the mouth goes into the stomach and then out of the body? But the things that come out of a person's mouth come from the heart, and these defile them. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander. These are what defile a person. But eating with unwashed hands doesn't defile them. This is not a popular message for our day, for this crowd, by any stretch of the imagination. I think part of my tears was just living in dread of preaching this passage in front of you guys because it is, it is, Jesus just like pulls the curtains back. Jesus says that the issues are not outside of us. It's not the outside influences that cause us to do what we do. It's not our daddy issues. It's not our boss's faults. It's not this circumstance. It's, it's not those things, Jesus says. The defilement and the dirtiness and our behavior, Jesus says, it's a matter of our internal hearts. It's all flowing out of all of us, each one of us, coming from within us. And what Jesus is doing here is he's creating a pathway to cleanliness, true cleanliness, heart cleanliness. And so the way to cleanliness, it doesn't start with us saying, okay, I'm going to obey these outward rules and these traditions. Cleanliness starts by allowing Jesus to address us where our hearts are right now, because he knows. And if we're all gonna be honest, even in a room like this full of beautiful, freshly showered people, all clean and sparkly and shiny, somewhere deep down inside of each one of us, we're all like, yeah, I feel it. When I'm alone, I know there's stuff in there that is gnarly. I don't like to think about it. I'd rather just be scrolling through Instagram and, and I'd rather be distracted and watching and going faster and more, whatever I can do to not get settled in because when I do get settled in, it's like, oh, oh man, there is stuff in me that I'm not comfortable with that I don't like. And Jesus loves you so intensely, so unconditionally, so unconditionally. When we're really able to hear the voice of Jesus coming to us and he's saying, look, it's not your outward circumstances that are defiling you. It's, it's what's coming from within you. And we're able to really look at that inward gnarliness in the presence of his loving gaze upon us. Well, that's where cleansing is. That's how it begins. That's where the divide between God and man and God and woman ends. That's where intimacy with God is birthed anew and afresh. Uh, Tim Keller, he's honestly one of my living heroes, and he says that the way of Jesus causes us to realize that we are actually more sinful than we could have ever imagined, but we're more loved than we could ever believe. So a heart that is close to God, and this is the counterintuitive nature of Christianity and the unpopular message of Christianity, a heart that is close to God it's, it becomes self-aware of, at least I have, of the hypocrisy, the lies, the lust, the perversion, the anger, the bitterness, the murderous intent, 
But simultaneously, in that moment of God's loving gaze on us, as we become aware of those things that are in there, we recognize them, we don't flee from them, we don't Instagram, distract from them, we literally just sit with them. In that moment, we also become aware of and experience God's unconditional love towards us, and it's that love that begins to transform our hypocrisy. It's that love that begins to transform our lust. It's that love that begins to transform all the things in us that we're uncomfortable with. As we experience acceptance and love, those things are washed clean in his merciful goodness towards us. As he just wraps us up and says, I know, kiddo, and I'm going to hold on to you, and I'm going to be for you, and I'm going to get you out of this mess. <laughs> A heart close to God knows, knows, Hear this, a heart that is growing closer to God knows that merely modifying our behavior outwardly apart from deep heart transformation is just an act of futility. A heart close to God does not deny Jesus's authority in, in calling out the evil within us and a heart close to God doesn't take offense to Jesus calling us out. We surrender to that, we submit to that, and we trust him to renew us from within out of his love. And now, and now, Matthew does something very, very interesting at this point, and very important at this point in the story. He's going to point us to the way of intimacy. These authors, they put these stories together in very specific ways, and there are profound lessons in what they did and the way that they compiled these stories. Because Matthew now turns us to teach us this, this incredible lesson. He wants to teach us what it looks like when we as humans quit being religious, quit modifying our behavior, quit avoiding, quit denying, quit just. He wants us to see all of the, he wants us to see what it looks like when, when, an, entire, when an entire world of humans say, Pursue Jesus wholeheartedly. He wants us to see what that looks like. And what he does is he teaches through this, this very difficult story of the Canaanite woman and Jesus' interactions with her and then her responses to him. I'm going to read the whole story. Would you guys read with me verses 21 to 28? So Jesus takes off from this interaction with the so-called clean ones, the Pharisees. Leaving that place, verse 21... Jesus withdrew to the region of Tyre and Sidon. A Canaanite woman from that vicinity came to him, crying out, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter is demon-possessed and suffering terribly. Jesus didn't answer a word. So his disciples came to him and urged him, send her away, for she keeps crying out after us. Just let this, let this story unfold in your minds. She's chasing after Jesus, and he's just oblivious. The disciples are like, hey, Jesus, the crazy lady, come on. Acknowledge her and tell her to go away. He finally answers, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. And the woman, she comes and she kneels before him. Lord, help me. He replied, it's not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. And her response is, yes, it is, Lord, she said. Even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. And then Jesus said to her, woman, you have great faith. I, I, I wish, I pray that the Spirit just let you feel the celebration of Jesus Christ in this moment as he views this woman. Woman, 
you have great faith. Your request is granted. And her daughter was healed at that moment. Okay. I'm just going to highlight some key things for us from this story and show you why Matthew is using it as an example of what true cleanliness, what undefiled relationship with God looks like for human beings. The first thing to notice, Jesus goes to the places and to the humans that are considered unclean by the so-called clean parts of society. Jesus goes directly to the dirty, gnarly, nasty places that no person wants to go to, particularly in his society. And so in this story, these self-proclaimed clean ones, the Pharisees, they travel all the way from Jerusalem. They come to Jesus, but they don't come to learn from him. They come to control him. And they don't come to sit at his feet and apprentice themselves to him. They don't come to surrender to him. They come to confront him. And tell him why he's wrong. In this story, Jesus just leaves all of that mess. He leaves all the religious facades. He leaves all the outward behavior modification. He leaves all the traditions. He leaves all the bitterness, all the cynicism, all the masks. He just, he, he le- and he goes to where there is just mess to Tyre and Sidon. Tyre and Sidon, these were ancient cities that were associated with Israel's enemies. In Tyre and Sidon and Canaan, this is where the Israelites were enticed to literally sacrifice their children and burn them to foreign gods. That's what's in the collective memory of where Jesus is going into this geographic location. He is literally going to, into the most unclean places. And so in our day and age, I mean, we don't even have, we don't even really have anything to, to, to compare this to. He's going into a cave, sitting down with a bunch of ISIS soldiers that just cut Christians' heads off. That's where he's going. And upon his arrival, he meets this Canaanite woman. Now, this woman in Jesus' society, she would have been the lowest of the low class due to her gender, her location, and her historical heritage in the eyes of Jesus' society. Now, what I want us to see is let's look at her approach to Jesus in contrast to how the Pharisees, the clean ones, approached him. When this woman comes to Jesus, she does not come to challenge him. She doesn't come with her cynicism to berate him. She doesn't come with her entitlement. This is why you should do what I want you to do. She doesn't come with demands upon Jesus that she's like presenting to him. Here's what I've done. Here's what I've done. Here's what I've done. This is why I'm clean. This is why you should do for me what I want you to do. She, she literally can't do any of that. She, she has no ability to check off any of the boxes that would make her clean and acceptable and part of the insider group in the eyes of the society that she lived in and in the eyes of Jesus' society. She also doesn't come to Jesus to redefine him. She doesn't come hoping that Jesus will say exactly what will tickle her ears in exactly the way that she wants. She just, she comes and submits to his authority unconditionally. She doesn't question him. She doesn't challenge his teachings. She simply comes and confesses and surrenders to him as Lord and as the son of David. True cleansing starts when Jesus, who even this morning, by his spirit, He is coming into our sense of dirtiness, literally. He comes into our shame. He comes into our mess. 
He comes into those places where we feel like we've been rejected, humiliated. He comes into those places, those moments where we feel like we've completely failed and we're just filled with guilt. He comes into all of that sense of defilement and we, according with this woman, we respond to him not with presenting our outward traditions and our behaviors, not with trying to redefine him and make him say something that he doesn't want to say. We just say to him, you are my Lord. You have all authority over me. You're my king. That's what this woman does. That's the beginning of cleanliness. We surrender to him as our authority beyond anything else. And we begin to trust him as our only hope out of this defiled state. Now, the next thing I want us to notice is how she comes. (laughs) She comes in total desperation with no self-dependence at all. Total desperation. When we read about the Pharisees, they come all the way from Jerusalem and they meet with Jesus And they have this air of self-dependence and confidence and cockiness and arrogance and, and we've figured out how to keep ourselves from being defiled. And they come to Jesus with this long list of why what they do is right and why what Jesus does is wrong. But this woman, she's been crippled. She's been crushed. Her circumstances and her pain have pulled the rug so far out from underneath her that not only can she not depend on herself, she doesn't even know what she can depend on. Her daughter, her own daughter is demonized. And her pain, her desperation has been birthed by this inability to find help, to find healing by anything that she can do. And so she is so longing for help. There's nothing that... Desperation for this woman is what closes the gap between her and Jesus. And what I want to propose to us this morning, Park Hill, is that it is desperation that closes the gap between we humans and our God. Desperation. Deep, terrifying, overwhelming desperation. This is what causes us to cling to God for deliverance. This isn't my notes, but I just thought of this. Can I tell you guys a quick story? Really quick? I was at Disneyland, uh, this was a number of weeks ago, and you guys know Tower of Terror, or the, what is it now, it's the Guardians, Guardians of the Galaxy, yeah. So I'm standing in line, and there's this couple next to me, and this dude is like ripped, he's like probably 6'2", buff, and he's got his girlfriend, I mean, chest puffed out, just tough as nails, and he's talking, he's impressing her, and all this other stuff, and we're, we're going to get on the Tower of Terror, this ride's so awesome, I love this ride, this is the best ride at Disneyland, this girl's like, oh, it is the best ride at Disneyland, I'm so scared, don't you be scared, girl, it's going to be fine, <laughs> we get on the ride, <laughs> this is so funny, I can't believe this came to me, we get on the ride, <laughs> and I'm not kidding. We're going up, and, and I, it gets really quiet. And this guy, all of a sudden, I see him, like, clamping hold. His knuckles are starting to turn white. And, you know, as you go up that first drop, your stomach, everything, he lets out this squeal that sounds like a little girl. And I'm not kidding. He reached over and grabbed my arm, grabbed my arm with the other one, and held on to me for the entire ride like this. <laughs> The ride finishes, and my arm is bruised from this dude just grabbing hold of me, clinging to me in desperation. 
And the only thing he says to his girlfriend is like, that was awesome, wasn't it? <laughs> desperation, desperation, terrified, overwhelmed, all the facades come off. I'm not in control. I'm scared out of my mind. This circumstance is hurting me in my soul. I need to get some help. That's Christian prayer. That's Christian faith. That's Christian worship. That is the dependence that brings the divide between God and man to nothing. And nothing, nothing stops her pursuit of Jesus. Nothing stops our pursuit of Jesus. Nothing could halt her desperate praying for his work in her life. And so the disciples, as she's coming, they treat her as defiled and they try to shoo her off. I just want you guys to keep feeling this. You're desperate for help. You have nowhere to turn. And then you approach the one that you're certain can help. And his community just shuns you and tries to push you out. That sense of shame, your cheeks turn all red. You feel like a total outsider. But she doesn't turn away even in that. She doesn't give up. She keeps pressing in. She keeps crying out. Her, her disciples are mocking her. Jesus, get rid of her. And she's like, no, Jesus, please help me. Please. I have enough. Please help me. And when Jesus responds to her, as I meditated on this story, what you expect to happen in that moment, she's pressed through, and then we expect Jesus to be Jesus, gentle, lowly, meek and mild, little lamb tucked underneath his arm, wavy hair in the wind. Yes, my child, I'm so pleased. That's not what he does. This is so intense what he does here. Please, Jesus, help me. I have no one else. I have, please, my daughter, my daughter, she's demonized, help me. No. I wasn't sent to you is the way that she would hear what he says. This is the way that her experience would be felt. Commentators across the board do everything they can with this passage because when Jesus says, it's not right for me to give bread that only goes to the children instead of to the dogs, it's so, it, it sounds so abrasive. And it, and it sounds, it's so hard to hear. Jesus, he seems, he seems to be aligning himself with the society's mantras of the day. And he seems to be saying, no, you're, you're the wrong kind of people. You're in the wrong place. You are defiled. And it seems, it feels, as you read this and you meditate and you're just like, if, if I was there, if I was her, it would feel like he just called me a dog. For this woman and her experience, that's the way that it would have been feeling for her. For her, his response would have been the ultimate moment of defeat, and it would have been absolutely disheartening. But as always, there is always something going on underneath the surface with Jesus. Always something miraculous, always something mind-blowing going on in the mind of Jesus anytime he does what he does that completely confuses us. The Lord, as we're going to see, he, he's, the biblical word is he's testing her. He's like really refining. He's, he, he knows what's about to go down and he is like, he is bringing her right to the very brink of the most awful scene. 
And yet there's this incredibly profound lesson. And here's part of the lesson. This is a moment, this moment that this woman is having, this is a moment that you and I in our Christian journey, we will all face it in some measure at some point if we're, if, if we're raw, if we're raw. The church, we Christians, we will go through seasons where Jesus' silence or what feels like his non-response, it makes us feel like, it can make us feel like, wait, is Jesus aligned with what society says about, about me, about us? Is his silence and his non-response, it can make us, in our experience, it can be like, wait, is, what, what do I do? It seems like he's rejecting me. And what we'll do in those moments is we'll become like the Pharisees. Okay, I gotta clean myself up. I gotta make it happen. Jesus, I'll do this, I'll do this. Please just respond to me. I'll, do, I'll add this, I'll add that. I won't do this, I won't do that. And we'll begin modifying our behavior in the hopes that he'll turn to us and say, okay, you got it now, blessings. Or, or in a room like this, with our generation, Gen Xers, angsty, angry about everything, millennials just trying to figure out what in the world is happening in the world? These Gen Z kids that actually give me hope. But for a lot, for a lot, we just de-church. Oh, I pray, I'm desperate, I kneel, no response, I'm out. I'm, I'm not gonna do it anymore. I don't, I, don't wanna, I don't wanna keep pressing in. And we will be tempted in that way when these types of times come in our Christian journey with Jesus. When we are tempted to believe that even Jesus himself is saying, nope, I'm not going to answer you. Nope, I'm not going to respond to you. I'm not going to help you. But the reality is what we learn from this passage is that that is never the case with Jesus, ever. He absolutely is in love with her. And though in this moment it, it appears that he's saying, nope, you're a dog, I can't do anything for you. He actually sees her for who she truly is, a daughter of the creator. And he's gonna draw her out so intensely that we millennia later are looking at her story saying, I want that kind of faith. That's what's happening here. And this is the glorious, miraculous, powerful lesson we learned from the Canaanite woman. She doesn't turn in anger. She doesn't resign herself to depression and hopelessness. She doesn't deny necessarily what all the society is saying about her. She actually acknowledges it. And to Jesus, she's saying, fine, fine. You know what? Society around me says that I'm lowly. I'm like a dog to them. But even though you, Jesus, right now, I don't understand your response she is saying, I know that you are not like them in her response to Jesus. She is saying, with her response to Jesus, I know you're not like them. You're the Lord, the son of David, and you have come to heal these divisions and cleanse this defilement. Because of who you are, because you're the great Lord of all, because you're the son of David, because this woman says, I know who you are. She, she just, in total surrender, she says, even me, because of who you are, Jesus, a lower class, rejected, shunned in the eyes of society, dirty little dog, because of who you truly are, even I can have provision from you. I can eat from your table. And for me, that's enough. That's all I want. That is raw, desperate, faith-filled, humbled, broken, intimate, 
cleansing Christian practice in its purest form. True cleanliness that creates life-giving intimacy with Jesus says this for all of us. I know what's in there. I know what I am. I know what's in my heart. I know what my peer group either says or doesn't say, accepting or not accepting of me. I know that I'm on the outside at times, but I know who you are, Jesus. I know who you are. And even when it seems like you're not answering and you're not delivering, I'm going to press in because I would rather be a dog under your table than a king at a false table of self-dependence and self-made religion. It's sweeter to be in that humble, broken place with Jesus because as we're gonna see, as we're going to see, he doesn't see any one of us as a dog, nor would he ever treat us that way. His delight is in that moment when we are so broken and so faith-filled and so laid down before him that we don't fight anything. We just simply say, I'm going to press into you and receive from you. And that's where we begin to hear him say, you have great faith. Your request is granted. All right, I'm gonna wrap this up. Uh, and this is, this is really what I cried about all week. From my own life, I remember this like it was two seconds ago. Um, Jesus delivered me out of, I'm your quintessential sex, drugs, and rock and roll guy. No church, no Bible, nothing growing up, nothing, nothing at all. And um, he delivered me out of all of that. And I wish that I could say that first year of my Christianity when I first met him and prayed the prayer and all those things that, that I just was squeaky clean after that. You know, I, I turned my life around and everything went well and, and that simply wasn't the case. For that, at least that first year after I had met Jesus, I kept drinking very, very heavily. I was a black, almost a daily blackout drinker for about two and a half years of my life. Smoking weed, occasionally using different hallucinogens, uh, the girls, all of it. But no matter what, after I'd met Jesus, every Sunday, every Sunday, the Holy Spirit would just wake me up. And I'd end up going to the church. I mean, I remember multiple Sundays after like three to four days of binging and just going completely nuts. And then I would wake up on Sunday morning and I would be telling the Lord, I'm not going to church. There's no way. I smell like a brewery. I look like the walking dead. I haven't slept for two days. And yet I would be saying this as I was driving in my Nissan pickup to Lighthouse Christian Fellowship right there in Twin Falls, literally talking to him about, I'm not walking through the front doors as I'm walking through the front doors. And I'd walk into that church, sweet church, but all the people were so clean and like they had these Bibles and they knew what the Bible was and they understood what a Thessalonian was. Like I had no clue what any of this stuff was. And they knew when to raise their hands during worship and they knew what to say and they knew when to sit down, they knew when to stand. And, and they had their cute little families. And I can remember specifically walking through the foyer one day and there was this mom there and she had her three kids. And I remember her looking at me with like disgust. Cause I mean, I was a rough looking kid. Disgust, like she kind of grabbed her kids and kind of pulled them away from me as I was walking through the foyer. And it's funny now, but I remember in my soul being like, oh, oh that just hurts. And I remember feeling so disgusting. I remember feeling literally like I was a mangy dog that had wandered in off the alley. And yet, somehow in those earliest days, like the Holy Spirit just so had a hold of me because I knew I had met Jesus. 
Like I knew that he had met me January 1st, 1998. I knew he'd come and he told me, like, kiddo, it's gonna be okay. I'm gonna clean you up and I'm gonna help you. I'm gonna help you. But then it would go silent. And so I would go drink and drink and drink. And every week, every Sunday, I'd find myself going through that process and going back into the back of the church and sitting down. And every time it would never fail, the music would start and I would just start bawling. I would just start bawling. Like the first three years of my Christianity, it was just a snot fest of me crying every time music came on and Greg would start preaching and, and it was like words just going in and it was like every word was just, I'm with you, your faith is great, I am going to deliver you. And then Sunday would end and I'd leave and I'd go drink. So every week I'd show up as this beat up, filthy, shunned individual but I'd met Jesus and I would just keep pressing through. And what I find fascinating about those earliest days is I couldn't press through with Bible reading. I didn't understand the Bible at all. Uh, I couldn't press through with prayer because my prayers were just me bawling my eyes out. I, had, I didn't even know what prayer was. I couldn't press through with my right group of friends uh, because I weirded out all the Christian kids at the college group that I was a part of. It just, I, just utterly broken. But it was in that place that Jesus, he does. He does with, with the most religiously defiled, like the ones that look the most holy and the most clean. He comes right to them and he says, I'm gonna clean you up for real. And then he just wrecks your religion, just trashes all your traditions, offends the crap out of you. <laughs> and then with the, the real nasty, gnarly rebels with no cause, kids like me, he just, he just, comes after you and you just keep coming after him and then one day you wake up and you're like oh I'm not gonna drink anymore oh oh wait this is I'm loved even though I failed this way and this way and this way and I'm loved and so I'm still secure and I don't have to and then there's a strength there that's supernatural and things just begin to transform and ultimately what Jesus is bringing us to in pressing through his lack of response, impressing through his apparent silence, impressing through our circumstances, impressing through where it feels like the enemy is just accusing us and lying to us. What Jesus wants to grant us is to be close to him and him alone, no matter what, no matter what. No matter what society says, no matter what the church says, no matter what group accepts you or doesn't accept you, no matter what your own hearts are seeing, saying, no matter what our experience cur currently is, Jesus wants you. And he wants you to press in and he wants you to pursue him until you have him in full. And so those times when it seems like he's, in our, in our experience, it feels like he's being cold and he's not being responsive to us, that is the time when he's inviting us to press in even more and exhibit even greater faith, saying, I'm not gonna let my circumstances define who you are, Jesus. I'm not gonna redefine you. You're my Lord, you're my Savior, you're the King of David. You've come to cleanse me, you've come to heal these divisions, and I'm gonna cry out until it happens, until it happens. Clean hearts come by confessing, and clean hearts come by not having to justify what dwells within us and just bringing ourselves to Jesus. And as we come to the table this morning, ultimately, we're just coming to the king who was truly treated like a dog, truly treated like a dog. Jesus took the ultimate defilement and the dirtiness of our lives on the cross where our sin would be cleansed it was laid upon him so that we could be free. And so we're not gonna read the, the next story. 
But Matthew jumps into another feeding story. We had the feeding of the 5,000. He jumps right into the feeding of the 4,000. I just want to summarize this last. It's like the capstone on this section of Scripture from verse 32 of Matthew 15. All the people are coming. They're hungry. Jesus has been healing them, doing all these great works. And he says to his disciples, I have compassion for these people. That's Jesus. That's the son of David. That's the Lord that we're submitting to. And so today we're invited to come to the tables and to literally abandon our religion, like abandon it, (laughs) abandon it in relationship with Jesus and press into him, letting go of the traditions. We're invited to be humble and not have to like create this identity outside of ourselves and not have to keep fighting what society or our peer group or even our inward voice, that nasty inward voice that's always speaking to us. Today, we press through all of that. And with the Canaanite woman, we come and we meet with God and we, we say, crumbs are enough for me today. I would rather eat crumbs from your table than be separated from you. I'm not going to leave you. I just get the distinct sense that there are some in this room, you've been right on the edge I know how that feels. Struggling in prayer, wanting to see the answers, and you're right on the edge. And today, Jesus, his voice is literally saying, come, come, press in, fall apart, cry out. I want you, I want the broken you. And what his compassion says to us and what his cross assures us of this morning is that not only will we get crumbs from the king's table, but he has prepared for us a feast, a feast, And his banner over all of us this morning is love, love.